0: Hi, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Did you know that annual asthma-related expenditures in the United States exceed $80 billion, according to the CDC? The condition is responsible for 8.7 million lost work days and 5.2 million lost school days each and every year. Statistics show that approximately 40 million Americans, or about 13% of the U.S. population, have a lifetime history of asthma, 26 million currently have asthma, but only 15.4 million of those people in the United States are treated each year. So how how come they're not? Well, health insurance, or lack thereof, could be one of the reasons, but some people don't even know they have asthma, or they're not being seen by their healthcare providers on a routine basis, or they don't know that their symptoms could actually be asthma or allergies. Now... May is Asthma and Allergy Awareness Month. So today in preparation, because it is one day before, we are going to be talking and getting you up to date and aware about what all the signs and symptoms are of asthma and allergy problems and what to do about it. Now I am joined at the table by Dr. Matthew Lau from Kaiser Permanente Medical Center, and he's here to share with us how does somebody find out they have asthma and what do you do to treat this so that you can breathe with ease all the time. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Lau.
1: Thank you, Kathy. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Now, asthma. A lot of people think asthma equals wheezing, and that's all you got, and they don't necessarily understand the allergy connection. When you see people that are referred to you to find out if they have asthma, what kinds of things do you tell them about what asthma really means?
1: Well, one of the first things i like to know about is what are their symptoms? You are 100% right. Yes, wheezing can be asthma. It can be other things, but it can be asthma. But it's also important to note that it's not the only symptom of asthma. Sometimes they'll walk into the, your office and say, doctor, I'm, I'm having chronic cough, or I'm having shortness of breath, or when I run hard, or when I laugh hard, I get these symptoms. It's It can include wheezing, but it doesn't have to include wheezing. So just to make sure we're getting all the symptoms that helps us formulate an idea of whether this may be asthma or not. And also, especially if it's very recurrent, as you said, so many people have it, but it oftentimes starts in childhood. So we want to see the kind of a long recurrent history if they're an adult, so so to speak.
0: So when I see somebody in the office and they're wheezing right then, but they have an acute bronchitis, you could wheeze with an, an infection. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have asthma. It just means you may have a bad infection.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. So a lot of things can cause wheezing. Respiratory infections can do it, and they can exacerbate asthmatics as well. You have people with congestive heart failure, and fluid in the lungs can show up like wheezing. You can have a child that swallows a foreign body or toy, and it sounds like they're having stridor or wheezing. So you have to be aware of the general picture, but aside from those kinds of things, a lifetime history of recurrent wheezing, whether it's with exercise or respiratory infections, and having other symptoms that are related to allergies, that probably puts you in a lot more likelihood of having asthma, per se.
0: So when we talk about those allergies, are we talking about things like, you know, chronic sinus drainage and post-nasal drip and itchy, watery eyes, kind of the classic picture that we think of as, as allergy?
1: You're absolutely right. So nasal allergies or allergic rhinitis or allergic hay fever, these are all synonymous terms, uh, occur in about about 80% of patients with asthma. So whenever I hear a patient who may think they have asthma, one of the things that helps me is to look for the upper airway or itchy, watery eyes as well, Mm -hmm. symptoms. And Other allergic markers might also be looked for as supporting evidence, like allergic eczema, itchy skin rashes that have been there since childhood. These are all supporting uh, points that probably point towards a, a story of asthma. Not always allergic, but many times.
0: Well, and it sort of gets back to that idea of inflammation in the immune system. That if your immune system is hyperreacting to things, whether it be an allergen in the environment or something even in your own body, that that sometimes is the basis. This inflammation that goes on, in this case, in your airways for asthma, it may be in your nose when you get exposed to certain things. It could be in your skin, that atopic dermatitis that sort of my skin is so super sensitive and I have eczema and I have all these types of skin rashes, kind of all gets back down to that immune system which is interesting because that's the basis for which we decide on treatment. Uh,
1: That's correct, uh, Kathy. And the thing to remember, that's why our specialty is called allergy and immunology, because the immune system overreaction is the basis upon which people have these allergic or hyper-responsive reactions. So it's not under active immune system. It's an Overactive immune system uh, to things around us that we that aren't harmful per se, but our immune system overreacts and leads to the inflammation you talked about, whether it's in the eyes, nose, skin, or lungs.
0: So now, what age would be? most common for people to present with these symptoms. If they had some troubles as a child, I often hear people come in and saying, I had this problem as a kid, I quote, grew out of it. Do they really grow out of it? And in which case, when does it come back as an adult?
1: That's a really good question. You're talking about what we call natural history of the condition. The thing to remember is, even at a young age, one year old, two years old, most of the time, the wheezing that does occur at that age is viral-mediated. They're not quite allergic yet. They will be in the next couple of years, and there's a separation of different groups or what they call phenotypes where sometimes it's only viral-related only, and there's not a strong allergy component, and they do have less wheezing when they hit the school age. That's true. You do have groups, though, that when the immune system is involved with allergies, that wheezing predisposes them... Uh, to have asthma as their presentation of allergies. But those allergies in the immune system, whether it's from the nose all the way down to the lungs, are probably going to lead to further episodes as they get older. We do see a pattern in the teens teens with uh, the male patients whose asthma improves, but there always can be a low level of inflammation that, that you might not notice but can flare up later. So that's why it feels like. It went away, and sometimes it even comes back.
0: And so just be, be knowledgeable about that so that you can take a look and treat it if you need to. Now, you know, if you get diagnosed with asthma, if you have the symptoms and the constellation of features that suggest that this is a medical problem that you have to deal with, there are reasons why we want to be very aggressive about making sure that people don 't overuse rescue inhalers so so let 's just say that someone has been diagnosed with asthma you 've made the diagnosis and you 're now treating them. What would be the optimal initial way to start them on treatment now again if if you find a long list of things that are triggers. Obviously, they should work on the triggers. Strong perfumes, certain types of dust exposures, certain types of fumes. You know, you want to make sure that if you know something sets you off, well, don't go there. But what are when somebody truly has symptoms and they've done that lifestyle sort of intervention, shall we say? What are some of the beginning things that we do to treat asthma?
1: Probably the most common medications. If you're talking about medications... One of the first-line treatments for acute symptoms to help your wheezing immediately within minutes would be using what they call a short-acting beta agonist. These are well-known names like albuterol, Ventolin, and they very quickly, within minutes, relax tight airways, or they, in other words, bronchodilate your airways and give you quick relief. Now, you put it right on the button and said, well that's okay if your symptoms are only occasional, but if they're building up chronically, the frequency of symptoms will be much more than, let's say, twice a week. We use that as the rule of twos. So when it's over twice a week or when it's at nighttime more than twice a month, waking you up in the middle of the night from your asthma symptoms, you probably have a buildup of inflammation, not just tight airways, inflammation causing cough and mucus, that the albuterol or short-acting bronchodilators are inadequate therapy. And now you're talking about other anti-inflammatory medications.
0: All right. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. And when we come back, I'm going to be here with Dr. Matthew Lau from Kaiser Permanente Medical Center. And we're going to talk some more about what if you reach that point where you're reaching for your rescue inhaler way too often, and surprisingly, that is not that much. What is the next step that we really need to take a look at? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us.
1: Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Shamanad University, Inter-Island Solar Supply, and Hastings and & Pleadwell, a communication company.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Matthew Lau from Kaiser Permanente Medical Center. And today we're talking about asthma and allergies. There's a direct connection and often one correlates with the other. So if you can't control your exposures to things you're allergic to and you have asthma, you are more likely to have some troubles. So right before the break, we were talking about initial therapy, I think, should always be lifestyle treatments. If you know your triggers, don't do that. If dust is a problem for you, make sure you have somebody else dust optimally. But if not, then use a moist cloth instead of a dry one so you're not blowing dust around all when you're there. If you're allergic to strong smells, don't be spraying a lot of perfume because that can be a strong smell or other aerosolized things if you can avoid it. But if you need treatment and you need to help yourself breathe, you can use these short acting beta agonists, or these airway relaxers. Now, the key is that it doesn't really work for a long time. We're talking immediate action. But Dr. Lau, correct me if I'm wrong. It's only going to work for about four, or maybe six hours. It's not going to last for several days.
1: You're correct, Kathy. And the thing to realize is that if you're using it daily, like you were talking about, in fact, I've had patients walk in and say, I'm using my albuterol, oh, it's, I'm, doing, I'm doing all right. I'm just using it three times a day. That's way too often, and it's a sign. It's a red flag that frequent albuterol use or frequent symptoms daily are, is a warning sign that you need to see your regular physician as soon as possible to start you on medications which are more effective for the long term.
0: And that's when we're talking about things that might include our friend, the steroid.
1: Well, you know, steroids have a appropriately concerning reputation, especially if it's given by mouth or injections that reach the bloodstream. But inhaled steroids are just a wonderful tool that's safe at the right doses that can help reduce the inflammation in your airways so that your asthma symptoms are prevented better than just treated with a Band-Aid. The great news is we have lots of tools, even besides inhaled corticosteroids. There's just so many options available now.
0: So what would be the step that you would take if someone came in and said, "Okay, I've done my lifestyle changes. I'm having symptoms. I use my inhaler once or twice a day. What's the next step? in their type of therapy? What would you do if someone like that came in to see you and they were still having it and they couldn't manage triggers any more than they were already doing? What's the next plan of action?
1: One important thing is just like a cardiologist is going to check an EKG to see the extent of the condition they're dealing with. They made the diagnosis, but you also have to figure out what's the extent, just like a plumber has to go in there and find out, well, you're clogged, but how clogged are you? And that's where they may do some specialized tests, breathing tests, spirometry. And and so let's say they do those tests and they have an idea of the degree of severity. That's what's going to tell them based on national recommendations as to what level of medicines because they know what severity you are at. So that gives them an idea, a roadmap, where to start. So the dose of inhaled steroids is guided by the severity, but there are alternatives. There are non-steroid alternatives of which uh, you you would choose based on discussions with your physician, uh, based on your values and side effect risks, et cetera.
0: Now, there's combination therapy. So let's say that you did wind up on a steroid and you had even taken as much of that steroid as you could. You still needed to use that short acting rescue medication. There's combinations that people have heard that they might be familiar with Advair, Simbacort, Dulera. These are combinations of medications that include a steroid and a long acting beta agonist or a long-acting airway relaxer. They've kind of gotten some interesting reputations because of some concerns. When would a medicine like that be most appropriate?
1: Kathy, you're batting a thousand. (laughs) I'm going to say because whenever someone, if someone has marked daily symptoms that are not well controlled on a inhaled corticosteroid at a reasonable dose. Now one of the first things I do ask is if the inhaled steroid doesn't work, I do ask them, are you taking it regularly?
0: Mm-hmm. But let's not say as needed. Yeah,
1: let's say they're they're doing what their physician told them and they're not responding. These combination medications you just talked about, where there's an inhaled steroid plus a long acting airway relaxer built into one device has been a very valuable tool. There are others, but certainly that's the next step. And there are different strengths of those. So uh, it can dial up and down depending on how good your response is or what we call asthma control in response to your therapy.
0: Now, that brings up the point of different times of the year – might result in different symptoms. So if it's if you happen to have more difficulties when things are blooming, you're gonna have some trouble in the springtime. So you may need to adjust the dose at certain times of the year to cover for some of those potential triggers. So is that something that you see people do a lot? Take a lower dose when they don't necessarily have to, and if they can predict, hey, we're gonna have problems, then increase the dose to prevent those breathing issues.
1: I think that's a very valid strategy, and patients are pretty smart. When they understand what medicines prevent symptoms and what medicines treat acute attacks, they get very skilled at being able to adjust up and down if they've had some counseling by their physician. But that can be a very active proactive and effective strategy to dial up and down. With respiratory infections, especially if your physician gives you an an action plan what to do if things got worse, uh, the value is that you can then have a roadmap. When do I increase after a few weeks? When can I decrease back to my baseline uh, uh, so that I'm not on a extra dose throughout the year?
0: Now, how important is it to treat other medical conditions simultaneously? Like we know that if allergies go along and can potentially trigger somebody who has asthma to have more difficulties, should people also be simultaneously treating their allergy symptoms in order to prevent exacerbations of both allergies and asthma?
1: One should not ignore their nasal allergy symptoms. Studies have shown that if you treat the nasal allergies, if they're present, in a person who has especially allergic asthma, that actually helps the lungs indirectly. By clearing up the upper airway inflammation, it leads to more nasal breathing, and nasal breathing actually is less uh, triggering to an asthmatic lung than mouth breathing. So when your nose is clogged, it leads you to mouth breathing, and actually, that can be a little bit more irritating with the cold, uh, cold, dry air that gets into the lung. Versus nasal breathing, it's more—that's more warm air. The lungs like that better.
0: I guess that's always where they say, "Inhale through your nose, exhale through your mouth." Whenever you're doing some of those breathing techniques and things, can you mention that there are non-steroidal ways? that people can treat their asthma. What are some of the non-steroidal ways?
1: So some of the older medications are what they call mast cell stabilizers, chromalin. It's been less popular thus far because it's a very mild medication, but it's not quite as effective in the more moderate to severe cases. But certainly it can play a role in children, those patients who are pregnant. We think about those kind of agents. There are agents that are non-steroid like montelukast, which was brand name Singulair. And it's a non-steroid anti-inflammatory. These are all what we call controller medications, medications that control or prevent asthma. Uh, so that's on the uh, medication side that are non-steroid. And, and then there are these, uh, and some of the older medication, another non-steroid one is Theophylline. Uh, which is
0: it kind of uh, comes and goes and waves, it, <laughs> we love it, then a few years later, not so much, and then it comes back, and we love it again
1: well, you know you you bring up i I mentioned these not because i 'm a huge fan of them, but i it 's become evident that depending on people 's medical coverage, the dual controllers you talked about, which are the darlings to a great degree uh for for more moderate to severe asthma and 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 for good reason are darlings. Mm-hmm they cost quite a bit now that the copays which this show is not focused on can be a challenge for people so these older medications which are not as glamorous could be an option to discuss with your physician and on the other end now you have these super duper monoclonal antibodies that have come on the market and are just uh, amazing at what they can do, but they also come at a very high cost depending on what someone's insurance can cover them for.
0: It's almost amazing how much they charge. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we are talking about asthma and allergies with Dr. Matthew Lau from Kaiser Permanente Medical Center. We'll be right back after this quick break.
1: Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, here with my friend and fellow musician, Dr. Matthew Lau from Kaiser Permanente. And today we are talking about asthma and allergies. So right before the break, we talked about these new antibodies. Now, immunotherapy is something that we're seeing in a lot of different fields. So now we're moving into seeing how this can help with the immune system and how it manages some of these allergic, asthmatic conditions. Do you think that's where we're headed in the future?
1: Well, Kathy, basically that future is now. It is here. The The challenge for, I think, our medical system or our community, our nation, is how do we use those things wisely and not overuse them to where we bankrupt ourselves? Uh, I mean, the, and that comes back to the... We got to do the basics. We got to not smoke. Uh, we need to... Uh, see our physicians regularly, because the basics do work in the great majority of patients uh, so it the challenge I think going forward is really being clear as to who would most benefit at the appropriate level, and how long do we keep these people on these medications? especially that they're the ones that are so exquisitely expensive and can bankrupt the system if everyone goes on it, so to speak.
0: So it really sounds like patient selection. For those people who need to have that intensity of treatment, that may be best for them, but certainly not for everyone. What about the ideas that there are more kids who might be developing asthma and allergies if they're in sterile environments. You know, we often hear about the fact that if you're exposed to things when you're younger, you might have less of an issue with it in the future. And it sort of gets to some of the whole concept that we've discovered as far as asthma and allergies in people with more biodiversity in their microbiome.
1: That's the holy grail. The immune system that you mentioned earlier in the program if we can turn it to not become allergic, that's a window that's very early in life, probably in infancy, the first year and a half, maybe maybe two years. But after that, the window kind of closes. So you have a very narrow window of time that you can make the immune system not become allergic or influence the immune system. It's partly greatly influenced by genetic tendency of your parents, but it also depends on the environment. And so the kind of flora that you're exposed to at such a young age can influence whether you become an allergic person or not. And so we call that the hygiene theory. So the the theory being that, uh, well, from the observation that people who grew up in a rural environment with lots of exposure to animals and bacteria, uh, actually had a lower rate of allergic and asthma conditions versus those raised in an urban environment where we didn't have all that animal exposure. Well, now we find out that frequent antibiotics may be cutting down on that flora if we give infants and children too much antibiotics. So that also may alter the course of your immune system.
0: It seems like any time we mess with our body's natural bacteria or our natural way of being, that we invariably find ourselves in trouble. And I think when people realize how much of the immune system is actually present in your gut, it's an amazing amount that, in fact, if you want to go and deal with the immune system, you kind of have to look at the whole digestive tract as well.
1: You're you're, you're correct. And it's leading to some exciting things, because if we can restore or at least preserve the appropriate natural flora that can lead to a non-allergic immune system that many normal persons would have, then we've really prevented, now you're talking about primary prevention of allergic disease, and that is just, we're on the cusp of that. We're understanding that better. And the question is uh, what to give exactly, how much to give it, how long to give it, do we have to give it to everybody? And and those are the questions that are really going to come up that I'm so excited
0: about. So maybe what we'll see in the hopefully not so distant future is that we can identify how we can decrease the amount of allergic response that people have, before they actually develop a chronic condition. But for those folks who actually still have chronic problems with asthma and allergies, then we've really got to figure out ways, as we've done with some of the immunotherapy, to target the patient's selection so that what treatment we provide is based on their response and what their body needs. Should everybody have an asthma action plan?
1: The answer is uh, ideally, yes on a practical basis, Uh, it's not easy for all patients to have that plan lying around. It's easy to lose things. I think, ideally, having it in a place that one can access consistently, and now you're talking about things like access to their electronic medical record, they can always refer to it, that physicians, whether it's ERs, hospital side, or the primary doctor or specialist can all share. I think that's where the best place for the action plan, so a patient can read and then uh, and 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 look at instructions by their physician that they have worked with, how to adjust their medicines based on how their asthma is doing. So rather than it used to be just an old piece of paper, well, it gets lost or things change. But if you have it electronically, that's updated. It's a much more living living document.
0: Well, that's going to be one of the goals. So for this being May, as it's going to be starting tomorrow, Asthma and Allergy Awareness Month, if you do have a problem, it is time to take a look and create with your provider an asthma and allergy action plan so you know what to do, when to do it, and can keep yourself breathing and feeling well all year long. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today, Dr. Lau. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org all the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. See you then.